brought to you by Penguin. I don't think that we're necessarily rearing young people to understand sort of safe engagement with sexuality, sexual expression and engagement with sex at a young age that isn't about power. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Penguin Podcast with me, Nihal Arthanaika. On this multi-award winning series, we ask authors to give us a glimpse into their world. We want to explore their writing habits, find out more about what inspires them and drives them and discover what message they hope to bring to the people who pick up their books. We also ask our guests to bring with them a selection of objects that have had an impact on them or their writing when we delve a little deeper into why. Today, I'm joined by a writer academic and podcaster who, when aged just 13, started work on what would become a viral phenomenon of modern British culture. Now, nearly 20 years later, Keisha the Sket is being published by Stormzy's Penguin imprint Murky Books, along with reflective commentary and essays to bring the realities of being a black London teenager to the wider world. In the time since uploading those first chapters to the teen blogging site Pixo back in 2005, my guest has continued to explore the politics of what it is to be black and a working class woman in Britain today. Writing extensively for Black Ballad, among other publications, and as one half of the brilliant Echo Chamber podcast. Known as Jade LB, I'm delighted to welcome her onto the Penguin podcast today. Jade I am truly delighted. I'm not going to lie. I'm so excited to meet you and to talk through your creative process. Firstly, though, when did you begin to realise that these vignettes of a teenage girl's life was beginning to really connect with people? Um, Thank you so much for that intro. I think that's the best intro I've ever heard. (laughs) Um... I think that I began to realise perhaps more positively that it was connecting with people in in my adult years. Um, So, yeah, not much before that. I didn't see it, the resonance of the piece with people. I didn't see it as a positive thing for a very long time. And I mean, looking back retrospectively, it was something that resonated with people, um, boys and girls. But, yeah, for a long time, my presumption was that it was quite a negative Why the perception that it was negative initially when you were doing it? There was definitely the presumption and the perception that people were far more interested in just the the sex and I guess creating stories around me and my own sexual expression or sexuality. So yeah, that's I was quite looking at it very in a very tunnel vision way and just making a lot of assumptions essentially. And then I guess I mean, I was never really plugged in on social media, but um, starting the podcast and seeing the conversations that people were having on Twitter about the piece, um, how nuanced their their version or their recollection of Keisha the Skit was, ushered in like a new perspective on how people were connecting with it. I mean, now, Jade, we can have instant validation through social media. 
But in 2005 and onwards, that wasn't the case. So why were you doing it? Because now people are so performative, aren't they, in what they do to get that instant validation? Um, That's such a good question. I had no reason to continue to do it. I think that people presume that I would go into school and I was like the most popular girl in my year group and everyone was sort of like, yeah, Keisha, this get, that wasn't the case. So there was really nothing um, outwardly that made me want to continue to upload chapters every few weeks of this story. It was just my own creative expression, honestly. And in terms of what that creative expression meant for you, So often I interview songwriters, authors, poets, and it is a form of catharsis. It's a pressure valve releasing. It's uh, a form of therapy. What was it for you? I think it was a couple of different things. So I always read um, Ricardo's character and I'm so clear on Ricardo almost being like this ideal boy (laughs) (laughs) for for a teenage me. So I was writing up this ideal teenage boy in Ricardo's character. Um, So that was one, I guess it was, yeah, an expression of my imagination and maybe my hopes or wishes. Hormones. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then on the other hand, Um, I think it was maybe symptomatic of me being a little bit, I want to say maybe disconnected, but I think teenagehood is really difficult. It's a difficult time to navigate. I think that your self-esteem is extremely vulnerable. And I think I was definitely going through all of those motions in those years. It wasn't easy. So in terms of like having alone time, feeling alone as well sometimes this is what I was doing in that time did you feel protected as a teenage girl that you felt that there were barriers protections for you from the outside world um that is a very interesting question really interesting and the first thing that comes to my mind is that part and parcel of feeling protected from the outside world is probably a really strong identity. So I think if you're really connected maybe to your heritage, for example, or a tribe or some community, and I have quite a mixed heritage, for example, so there isn't like one community that we're from So perhaps, no, perhaps I felt a little bit exposed and raw and vulnerable as a young person because some of those really clear, direct links to particular communities or belongings were not tangible in my in my world. I went to school with a lot of Irish girls, a lot of girls that were Nigerian and had a connect link to a specific tribe or spoke a language, or had a church, and I didn't have any of those things. So yeah, that is a very interesting question, and I think thinking about it as you've asked it, and where my mind has gone, probably not. So then without that sense of protection, whether you were conscious of it or not, how then strong were you in the face of the expectations of teenage boys of who you should be and what you should be? As an adult, 
I can see exactly how relevant that is. And when it came to my relationships with teenage boys as a young, as a young lady, I definitely maybe just distanced myself. And then in trying to establish a connection and an identity for myself, I definitely latched onto faith and Christianity. Was that enough? In many ways, I would say so, yes. And for a time, I think it was enough. I think that, of course, my very immature understanding of religion definitely made me feel and think that if I follow this thing to a T, I will be good and acceptable and worthy. And my self-esteem was somewhat linked to how well I followed my interpretation of, of this faith. So in that respect then, did you feel, however superficial this sounds, at any stage as a teenage girl that you were pretty? No, no. I, t I think it took a long time until I um, considered myself pretty or attractive. Was Christianity enough to teach you to love yourself? when others around you perhaps made you feel as though you weren't? I think it was a great placeholder. Christianity and trying to follow the, the rules and the dogma of this faith was the vanguard against being pulled from pillar to post by boys or girls, you know, doing whatever they, they might have been doing at the time. Um, but no, I think when I got to my mid-20s, I realised that no, Christianity hadn't helped me to develop my self-esteem at all. It hadn't affirmed me. I didn't feel held. I think therapy did that. I think actually what Christianity did was it helped me to judge myself and be maybe more unkind to myself. I must say, I'm not saying it's Christianity, but my interpretation of Christianity. How difficult is it to resist the hypersexuality that boys expect of you because of the music they're listening to, because of the films they may be watching. And we're talking about Keisha the Skit in a pre-pornography world in terms of smartphones and the sharing of pornography. But in 2005, there was a, still a whole heap of hypersexuality around, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That feels to me in my for my experience like an interesting question when I think back to maybe the way that I presented as an older teen so at in sixth form and at university because I had successfully maybe distanced myself from being a sexual being but I think for the most part I think it's quite difficult to navigate and to avoid in my own opinions working with young people, working quite sensitively with young women at risk of sexual exploitation, more specifically, I think that it is very difficult. I don't think that we're necessarily rearing young people to understand sort of safe engagement with sexuality sexual expression and engagement with sex at a young age that isn't about power. I don't think that we are teaching young people the difference between vulnerability and love and sexual expression, safe sexual expression, and then 
sex that is part and parcel of power. How difficult do you think it is for a young man to be able to express romantic love in that context? Because we often talk about women and romantic love. But when a man, in, in Keisha the Skep, when a young man expresses it, his boys curse him for it, right? It's a joke. Yeah. I'm currently, I'm just finishing off um, Bell Hooks' is All About Love. And she talks quite extensively about the gendered ways in which we are socialised to think about love. So as you just said there, when we think about love and romantic love, we, we think of women being more equipped, it being more natural for women to express romantic love and, and be capable of romantic love. And we allow men to get away with this narrative that it's, it's not a done thing or that it takes extra effort to be open to or to be giving of romantic love. And she sort of just shoots it down and she exposes capitalism and patriarchy as two forces that allow men to believe that, to go through their life believing that, that they are naturally predisposed to finding romantic love harder to give and accept um and part and parcel of patriarchy and capitalism is power and so i think when we cons- when we considering the way that boys and young men are socialized to believe that they need to be powerful and that they need to, I, I, can, I guess I can speak for young men, maybe more from my demographic. And I feel like the narrative that, you know, you have to get material wealth to be okay. That is the thing that you pursue. Um, and, and there is an element of power to having a lot of material wealth. Um, but yeah, when they're reared to believe these things, of course, romantic love and and all of the things that come with that, so vulnerability and trust and all of those things don't, they, they don't fit together very well. Let's go to your first object. You just spoke about a book. We're here to talk about another book as your first object, Around the Way Girls. Tell us about why you wanted this to be your first object. I chose Around the Way Girl. So I chose a couple of objects um, that inspired my writing when I was a teenager and then a couple that inspired my writing as an adult. And Around the Way Girls is representative of the American fiction that I was reading at the time. So I happened upon the black fiction section in the library, in the local library, And they had all of these American novels and Around the Way Girls was one of the first novels that I read when I had this phase of just reading all of this American fiction and passing it around to friends and friends then going to their local libraries in their boroughs and finding the black fiction sections and also finding books. And Around the Way Girls, I believe, was uh, published by an imprint called Urban Books and Urban Books seemingly published a lot of black inner city authors who wrote about their environments, who wrote about, yeah, the the lives of black 
working class inner city people, but just in America. It's quite interesting to see your eyes light up when you're reimagining, perhaps discovering that this world existed, because presumably school didn't even tell you that this world existed of black fiction. No, not at all. And my eyes do always light up when I talk about it because it felt like the best thing in the world. And it was almost like there was almost a little trade going on in school because some people lived in the borough of Enfield. So I went to Enfield libraries and some people lived in Hackney and some people lived in Haringey. And so the libraries were diversely stocked. So some people had books that we didn't have over in Hackney. So we were trading and you got to get the book back, you know, uh, in time for your friend to hand it back in. And yeah, we did, we did that for, for over a year in school from what I remember, but I've always loved reading from a child, from a very little child before I could actually read. I've, I've loved books And I remember discovering Jacqueline Wilson and feeling connected to the characters to some extent because she told stories of working classness, which I could connect with. The girls were typically all white, but I could connect with their working classness. And then it was almost like another, I could connect in terms of race and class. I could connect with with these new people in these American stories. And like my imagination was able to really run with these stories because I could see them, I could feel what they were experiencing. Was there any appetite in school by your teachers, Jade, to read these books, to be receptive to this? Not at all, not at all. And some of these books had really wild names had like really wild titles I <laughs> so bet they I, did <laughs> I actually did a little shopping spree on Amazon the other day and so I've got a few of them on my bookshelf now I think I've got about six and one of them is called drug related so that would be the type of title that we'd actually get some paper and slot it into the um into the film to cover up the name of the the title of the book. But no, we went to a very, I went to a very strict convent school and we read To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) That's what we read. Your second object, and I slightly loathe to call it an object because I don't want to objectify it, uh, is Black British Girlhood. Okay, this is a Without question, the broadest object we have ever received on the Penguin podcast. And that's a good thing. So tell us why, because clearly without black British girlhood, there is no Keisha the Sket. Exactly that. Without black British girlhood, there there is no Keisha the Sket. And there is a way that I can reflect on my girlhood as an adult with hindsight. At the time of living it, I was unconscious of the ways in which I was speaking to my experience, but I was. And I essentially wrote up and provided a bit of history, essentially. Um, I archived an experience, but without Black British girlhood, without my associations with friends, with other Black girls, without that very small knowledge of self or understanding of self or considerations of self, 
there would be no quiche the scare without there now being, I don't want to call it an, an industry, but without it now being a thing. So us being reflective as black women, without us carving out space as black women, without us attempting to nurture our, our child selves, but also the young black girls coming up behind us, um, without us doing all of that work, there would also be no Keisha the Skit. There would be no space, no consideration, no reflections, no contemplations on Keisha the Skit. Do you feel any pushback from sections of the black community, specifically male, to really and truly the first time we're seeing a real assertion of your identity and your individualism and your independence and not independent and strong from a male gaze, but from your own experience? I feel so nurtured and held by, by the team of people around me. So I don't even feel like I know what other less you know what other people are saying so anyone that's sort of not affirming this work I have no idea of what <laughs> anyone else is saying sort of thing well that's the like echo chamber right? yeah <laughs> yeah that's the echo chamber right there exactly yeah. I am I am in a little echo chamber and I don't know if it's because I'm not really on social media um, or because my team is just that good <laughs> um, but it honestly feels like everybody is accepting at the very least of of this piece of work but I did have I did have some assumptions about what young men were saying. And of course, there were some some young men that I happened upon that were silly and, and uneducated and misogynistic who had silly things to say or ask about Keisha the Skit. Such as? What's a silly question about Keisha the Skit? I think a silly question about Keisha the Skit was and would be, do I think it's a positive thing? Um, so the idea that it's, that it's a negative thing. And to that, the challenge is what is negative? Let's have a conversation about what's negative. I think going back to it as an adult, I'm very sort of staunch in my belief that Keisha was a victim of the quote-unquote bad things that that younger people felt that she was actually doing. So this having sex and having sexual relations with boys. And yeah, I don't see Keisha as being someone with agency in a lot of those pairings. I don't see how she is bad. I think that she is reflecting the truth. She's reflecting reality. I once interviewed an amazing record company executive called Drew Dixon. And she, in a documentary, made allegations against a record industry mogul, a very famous African-American record company mogul of sexual assault allegations that he denied. And one thing she said to me in the interview, which has always stuck with me, she said, when you're a black woman, the cavalry's not coming for you. Because I asked her whether she felt that Me Too movement had helped. And she said, no, there was no intersectionality there. In accusing a black man of sexually assaulting her, there's also a guilt as a black woman because you're brought up to protect black men from white society. Intersectionality, it encapsulates so much of what is wrong 
in society in that I think a lot from a class basis as much as I think about my race I think about my class as well what class can do how it can really do a number on one's confidence for example so when you think about submitting a report or making a complaint and not feeling entitled to access certain spaces or to access certain language to be able to communicate with with the police for example and just how isolated and alienating that experience is I agree very much that it doesn't feel like anyone is coming when you are you don't feel like you have access to particular spaces and not only based on your race but also on your class or on your ability or on your sexuality there's a tension with black women that is very unique to black women when it comes to thinking about our role in protecting black men I have spoken about and I have also written about the politics of dating as a black woman as a black British woman and being working class and being black and the dating pool and the men that I grew up with and maybe some of the access that they felt that they had in their adulthood and some of the choices that they decided to make. And so I am essentially sort of navigating a dating space where some of the time I am dating a man who in terms of his social capital in layman's terms may exist below me and all of the ramifications that that has and all of the ways in which I feel a sense of duty to protect him. um, I think it is a very unique tension that black women navigate with. I think even attitudes towards the police. So when you consider domestic violence, not wanting to phone the police on a black man, that tension, um, so the tension to protect yourself or to um, protect the man is very difficult, is very unique. And it is something that I feel constantly like I'm thinking about as I'm navigating dating, navigating life. Look, I want to get all of your objects in. So the next one, object three, this is great. Okay, so what did you find? You were clearing out at the end of 2020. I found my old diary. Wow. (laughs) At the time, I was writing the book, but I wasn't, I hadn't written the rewrite. I was miles away from writing the rewrite. So it was, I found this diary and it was great and it was interesting to to come across it and to, to look at my old self and to feel connected to her. But then when it came to writing the rewrite, the diary also became really, really important and really helpful for being able to invoke some some real nostalgia in in that section of the book. Um, How do you feel about the teenage you? Is there sympathy? Is there hope? Is there all of the above? All of the above. It's been it's taken some some work to get there. Um, I I don't know that any of us look back at our teenage selves and don't just feel like, oh, cringe sort of of thing. Um, But very uniquely, I have had to really, really love teenage Jade, really accept her, really like her, 
really respect her offering to the world. That is so unique. I think the average person gets to just forget about their teenage self, just lock their teenage self in a box. But I've had to fully embrace her with this journey, with this Keisha the Skep journey. And in that, I have definitely learned to, to like her, to respect her offerings to the world, to be grateful to her and to, to have new hope in her, actually, that she wasn't just fragile and lost and disconnected, that actually she was doing something. She was really doing something. She was onto something. When I interviewed Stormzy once and he told me that every summer he'd go to the library and he'd read as many books as he could because he wanted to get to school in September and have more badges. You got a badge every time you finished a book than anybody else. And when he said that to me, I thought to myself, he was destined for greatness. There was something about that drive, that yearning for knowledge, that curiosity. What do you think signifies and symbolises that you were destined for greatness? Oh, <laughs> That is such a hard question. I feel a little bit emotional. I don't know that I would consider myself to be great. I think I've always considered myself to be trying. I'm just trying. And I've always just tried. I've always made the effort. I think that may be a really big inspiration or aspiration has been to make my parents proud, which is so cliche, so, so, so cliche. But I think my parents are working class black British also. So their parents came from home. And I think that there's a unique experience that they have had, that generation has had. And I think I always felt it was like my responsibility to, particularly with my mum, look after her but also maybe more with my dad's for to be looked upon and for them to, to say, you know, we've at least created someone that did it. Do you find it difficult to accept compliments? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do you not believe in yourself as much as those around you do? Um, maybe, maybe to some degree, yeah. It's important, or it has been important, to um, have those people around me so I can see myself through their eyes. You're highly rated, Jade. Yeah. You're highly rated. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get that twisted for a second. <laughs> so, to the final thing you'll bring into the table today, Jade, the final object, and it is a human being, the rapper Jay Huss. Okay, talk to me about this extraordinary artist who really did kind of flip the script on what was expected and what black British urban black music sound would be. I mean, this guy is a visionary. When I think about Jay Huss, and again, Jay Huss, almost at Around the Way Girls, is symbolic of black British creativity for me. And when I think about Jay Huss, I just think, who told you you can do that? <laughs> and there are so many people that I think of and I think about and 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 I think about teenage me um, and and even me now releasing this book is that like, who told you that you could do this you know but J-Hus he came first and and you have confidence with it you don't care you're just you and you're just creating and you're just 
making a life and a, and a new world for yourself. And yeah, I'm so inspired by him and, and then other people. So I think about even, for example, the Receipts podcast hosts who told you guys that you can just do this. You can be on mics and just be black and ethnic minority women in your truth and in your authenticity and create a legacy with that. How did you feel when Jay Huss went to prison? So Jay Huss is, is a star. He's a star. And I say that in terms of the like really sort of when we think about numbers and sales and mm. all of that stuff and being rated in the industry. But I even think about people who are not at Jay Huss's level but are getting, you know, getting there. They're trying to do whatever they're doing. They're, they're rapping. They're getting a lot of views. They've got a lot of, they've got fans and they go to prison. And it's always the same sadness that I feel. And I feel sad because I feel like you are experiencing something different from perhaps what you thought life was going to be you've tasted something different and then you've been knocked all the way back almost to what you may have thought life was going to be. So you might have anticipated prison. You might have anticipated a hospital bed. You might have anticipated a friend's funeral. There are all of these experiences that I think are really central to a lot of working class black British people and when you get to that level of stardom or you even get to that level of popularity and life just looks different, there are worries that you no longer have. There are things that you are learning. There is a way that you can have self-confidence. Um, there is a team of people around you. There is a respect that you've never had. There is a way that people are not scared of you anymore. There are ways in which you are being told that you are a creative force not that you are, you know, scary or that you're dangerous or all of these negative things that sort of fill up a, particularly a young black boy's consciousness from a very early age. You're experiencing something very different, but then to be knocked back, it must be a new heartbreak. And because of my sort of musings about my presumptions about how that feels, it definitely fills me with a sadness when things like that happen. Finally, Jade, we like to ask our guests about a recent book that they have loved that they would like to share with the Penguin podcast listeners. So what's next to your bed or wherever you read at the moment? The book I am absolutely loving at the moment is Bell Hooks is All About Love. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm on the last few pages and I think that I'm purposely moving really slowly in these last few pages because I don't want it to finish. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm absolutely loving that. And I would implore anyone to pick that up. Jade LB, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for being so open and honest. Thank you. No, thank you so much. <laughs> 